you. Um, but as is my custom, I don't have a talk, but I have a lot of readings. So I'm hoping that um, whatever is happening in the room and whatever I had been thinking about will somehow make its way um, into um, a talk. Uh, while I was sitting tonight, I was probably like you, you know, shifting a little bit between uh, noticing the different contents of my mind, uh, and I was also noticing the fact that I was noticing. Uh, and I was feeling a, a kind of happiness at this, what's sometimes called this, an open secret, that, that the very nature of the, the awareness through which I'm perceiving, through which you are perceiving, is as it's described in the Tibetan tradition, but it's much more important just to experience it, it's described as primordially free. That uh, your own mind is the Buddha. And why don't we see that? Because there's a, a veil, which is a very chronic belief that you're not the Buddha. When I say the Buddha, you're awake. You are, your nature is awake. And I, I thought that I would begin tonight by just asking you to stop being aware. Stop it. <laughs> and then to have you either reflect on or just recognize what happened when I, when I told you to stop. What shines through instantly as something that you can't interrupt. That is, you could say it's unconditional. It's indestructible. What is that? I think in Heather's beautiful way, she was, she has been throughout the retreat uh, pointing to what's sometimes described as the, the essence of our mind. This, this as she described it in, in, who was, what's his name? Um, remember, Thomas Merton, the shy, quiet. Really pointing to the essence of mind is, is you could call it pure knowing, just knowing. It's very non-judgmental, non-evaluative, non-reactive, just open. And what we often think of mind, when we talk about the mind, you know, there really is no mind. Nobody's ever seen one. It's an idea, but it points to something that points to an experience that we have. So when I tell you to stop being aware, you likely have the experience of being aware. Hard to put into words what that is. But what we're usually referring to traditionally or conventionally when we refer to mind, we're, we're usually referring to our thinking mind. All the, the, the neurosis that Heather has spoken about, all of the preoccupations, all of the spinning, all of the, the building of the, uh, 
I call it the story of me. The creation, moment by moment, of a version of ourselves. A virtual version. And it comes in the form of many, many thoughts. Some say we have 65,000 of them every day. And that 90% are repeats from the day before. (laughs) But lost in this conventional view of mind and its thoughts is this is what we can call mind essence or the shy one or the, the, the nature of the mind itself. The Buddha said the nature of the mind is pure, luminous, brightly shining. And it is not something, as Heather also alluded to, it's not something that has to be created. It is your natural state. When I ask you to stop being lucidly aware, you can't. It's fundamental. It's so close that the Tibetans have a whole teaching on what they call the four faults. Why we don't recognize this, this, this natural freedom that is our own mind. Why don't we see it? It says, one, it's too close. Two, it's too vast. Because you can't really put your... doesn't fit in a box of our usual conceptual ideas. The third, it's too wonderful. And fourth, maybe most important, is it's too easy. That all we really have to do, because it is self-knowing, is, re- is recognize it, refer to that. What Kalu Rinpoche, another Tibetan teacher, calls this ever-present wakefulness and clarity. Essence being that you're already in, you're already occupying, being, having, whatever, however you want to talk about it, the very freedom that you're searching for. That very relief that you are, have been going, like I said, I think the first night I quoted Thich Nhat Hanh, you who are the richest person on earth who've been going around begging for a living. Stop being the destitute child. Come home. Reclaim your heritage. You are the Buddha. Why don't you see it? There's this idea. I'm not the Buddha. I'm a separate individual who is... The story is, there's something wrong. Something wrong with me. Although we can't find it on present evidence. Something wrong with me. But our... Memories, our ideas of ourselves, are constantly saying, something wrong with me. Something's wrong. And if something's wrong, as Heather also said so beautifully, we go out in search for soothing, for relief. We're doing, we spin out this world uh, out of love, out of love for ourselves. But in this innocent search, for relief, we overshoot the very source of our relief, which is none other than the very awareness through which you're perceiving right now. So our practice is constantly, whether or not someone speaks of this explicitly, it's constantly pointing you 
back to what's always already here. And so we use, we use whatever is here, whatever we can discover in the living present as our path, as our means. And that includes anything that you experience. That's why I said the first night, whatever you experience on this retreat is the right experience if you notice it. Because the, the most important element is this, the waking up, the, re, the remembering of this knowing, noticing, this primordial freedom. So just notice again tonight, periodically check in. Notice what you experience after your last thought has stopped and before the next one comes. As a teacher named Dujum Rinpoche, another Tibetan teacher, they, have be- they seem to be very pithy and clear. He says, after your last thought, has ceased, and before the next one comes, is there not a vivid clarity? Tell me, is, is that, does that make sense, what I'm saying? That has never changed even by a hair. But you can forget that part. Let's just look right now. He's... He follows it by saying, this is awareness. This is awareness. So not just a mind object, the objects of mind, but the, but mind, the nature of the mind. The where. It's good news. How far did we have to travel to recognize that? How long did it take So it's outside of time and outside of space, you could say. It's but he says, this is really good news, but we don't stay here. We don't stay in this simple knowing. We don't stay settled back into that, that shy, quiet, that undefined, just simply being aware. He says, isn't it true also that a a thought suddenly arises? He says, if this thought is noticed, if there's knowing of that thought, if there is that quality that we're training here of mindfulness, of kindfulness, clearly comprehending what's actually happening in real time. If mindfulness rises up to know that thought, it reveals itself as just part of the display, part of the expression of your mind, part of the creativity of nature as it expresses itself through our mind. Our mind is like a creative fountain. All those 65,000 thoughts, all the intuitions, all all the... the creations, the buildings that have been built, the plays that have been written, the music, all springing spontaneously, creatively, as an expression of our nature. So if we were to notice this 
the thinking, we'd see that it's just an expression of our nature and, and we're, we remain very free. But if we don't notice that thinking, it, what he calls, he says it spreads out into ordinary thinking, which he calls the chain of delusion. Because in that chain of delusion, if it goes unnoticed, there is a, we, that's when we, you could say it, and I like to think of it this way, we incarnate into the imaginary world of, of ourselves, the imaginary version of ourselves, a, a version of ourselves, of someone who really does a version of some, somebody that doesn't really exist. It's a virtual version. This is not to say that you don't exist. You are here as another beautiful, creative expression of life, each of us. Without your individuality, couldn't wake up. And it's really, it's um, why each person here is um, such a beautiful expression of life. And it's certainly not the version of ourselves that plays in our mind. I'm, I'm not a beautiful expression of life. I'm a flawed, failed, uh, insufficient, too much this, too little that. But the one that sits here, you can't put into that, that kind of language, that the fullness of your nature, the direct experience of yourself. You can't, any kind of words are almost an insult to what you are and what you can experience in real time. That's not momentarily based on memory. There's a deep connection that we feel when we come into that simplicity of presence. Who are you now in real time? So the Buddha woke up just like you and me. Just like, just so utterly human the Buddha was struggling, had that chronic angst, that search for relief, that feeling, a chronic feeling of, of dissatisfaction. Does that seem to relate to any of you? That something's feeling that something's missing, something, some problem needs to be solved, some Thirst needs to be quenched. Something needs to be satisfied. So this is a very universal human theme. And yet, I'm, at the same time, I'm saying, you're the richest person on earth who's going around begging for a living. So what happened? How did the I think it's instructive to look at how did the Buddha tease out of this, this uh, profound drama of our, our life and our thoughts? How did he recognize? How did he come home to himself? To that, 
as Derek Walcott says, to that stranger who, who had loved him all his life, whom he ignored for another, who knows him by heart. How did he do that? There were a few things that he had to realize in order to finally uh, pierce that veil, untangle the tangle, as Heather says, untangle that, that um, virtual version of himself that was always getting smaller, time always running out, kind of bound. How did he do that? He had everything. Very privileged. He had a lot of purity. Didn't tell any lies. He was honest. So he had all the the ingredients, the ground that really became part of the teachings. That it's in in order to have a a kind of worldly happiness and well-being, you have to um, you have to be able to act with, in a non-harming way. Otherwise, your life is, is um, tormented by regret, guilt, uh, the effects of, of your actions, the effects of your thoughts, effects of the things you say to yourself, to others. We have to... He had fairly well-established, even as a as a young man, a a kind of purity of action. Um, And so he was able to, because of that purity, he could experience an intense array of pleasures. He could experience um, things without, without um, without that torment of regret, without that agitation that comes when we're not able to let go of something we've said or did. But yet he was still restless, dissatisfied. And seemingly getting more and more unhappy, even though by all appearances, like most of us, living in a... in the Western world, relative to so many places in the world, the level of safety, the level of abundance, the level of the opportunity to enjoy such a uh, wide range of, of uh, stimulants, you could say, or pleasures, unknown in the history of the world. But yet we wander around kind of sorry about what we don't have. It was very similar to his life. But then he saw something that really began to shake him out of his own trance. His own trance of of trying to find relief in things that just kept reinforcing his dissatisfaction. He saw someone who was very similar in his to his age who was extremely ill. And this is the way the story goes, but I think it, you could take it as, as just symbolic or an example of how we tend to ignore the inevitable elements of life. That if you're born, a definition of birth is a leading cause of getting ill. 
And, but it really shook him up because he was 29, very healthy, and, uh, and he saw someone who looked like they could really go over the edge and somebody similar in age. And he realized this could happen to me. Somehow we, there's something built into our, our the way where our brain is organized that we some have some capacity for self-deception that we don't really know that that's our capacity. But then he he also saw a an extremely old person. That was something he hadn't really noticed either. The that the definition of birth also is the leading cause of aging. That if you're born, it comes with territory. And then he saw a corpse. And that blew his mind. Somehow he had been, he had been protected from seeing the reality, that definition of birth, leading cause of death. And he said, oh, that could happen to me too. And one of the ways it's talked about in the teachings is that at the very moment of seeing these, what are called the first three of the four heavenly messengers, his, it is said that his enchantment with youth, and it's sometimes called pride in youth, his enchantment with youth just evaporated. That we... He was so identified with his youth. So much he built his identity on being young. And you can see how our pride and our enchantment with youth is a, a kind of cultural um, value. How the way we tuck away the people who are um, elderly and the way we spend billions upon billions upon billions of dollars trying to to deny the inevitable aging process. And so at that moment, the enchantment with youth faded away. And then it said also that his, the enchantment with health, he knew that health is something that's vulnerable and that each person, no matter how many vitamins you take, no matter how much exercise, you will inevitably suffer uh, some kind of illness. Comes with the territory. It's not personal. It's not your fault. It's just what comes with being born. And of course, it shouldn't be so shocking to us, but I, I noticed that even presenting these kinds of teachings there's something in us that starts to squirm a little bit. And it speaks to that place that we don't really want to look at that. And it, it is very central in the Buddha's teaching that the unwillingness to look at that is what keeps us in a constant compulsive state of toppling forward, of obsessing about what's next and getting somewhere. What the Buddha called bhava. Since I'm on the topic of bhava, becoming, the word bhava is becoming, the, 
the way our mind kind of runs from silence, runs from presence, runs from our present condition to, to um, something better, something next, how we get so busy. You know, I've, I often read a passage from this editorialist named Amy Krauss Rosenthal where she's, she says our whole MO is, uh, how are you? Busy. How is your week? Good, busy. She says, you name the question, busy is the answer. She says, uh, she says, I know we're all terribly busy doing terribly important things, but more often than not, it's, our, it's just our knee-jerk response. She said, have people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were busy too? This week is crazy. I've got about 10 caves to draw on. Can I meet you by the fire next week? But her contention is it's all about the advent of coffee bars. And, and coffee's luscious byproduct, productivity, the joy of doing, accomplishing, crossing off. But she ends it by saying, as kids, our stock answer to every question was, what, what'd, you, what'd you learn at school today, or what'd you do, or what's happening? Nothing. She says, I'm starting to think that the word nothing is wasted on the young, and we need to reintroduce it into our grown-up vernacular. You say it a few times, and start to feel a little decaffeinated. <laughs> meditative. And she ends it by saying, how did we get so far away from this? The funny thing is, we're not even far away from it. We're a split second, a half breath away from that meditative, aware presence that has never left us for a moment. It's only, we've never really, there is not a person here that has ever truly left the present moment. We've only imagined that we were somewhere else. I find that very relieving. That to come back to myself, I don't have to go anywhere. <laughs> I just have to wake up. And when I say wake up, again, this is how some of these talks create themselves. I think of the passage from... Uh, a, or a story I heard, I read in Anthony DeMello's book on awareness. He wrote a beautiful little book on awareness. He's a, a mystic uh, Christian, um, interesting teacher. He, he tells a story about seeing something on, on Spanish television where there was a guy who knocked on his son's door and said, Jaime! Uh, get up. Jaime, get up. You have, to, you have to get up. You have to go to school. And Jaime says, I don't want to go to school. And uh, his father said, uh, why? And he says, I hate school. That's number one. Two, the kids tease me. And it's so dull. And his father says, Jaime, I'll give you three reasons why you have to go to school. It's your duty. You're 45 years old, and you're the headmaster. Wake up. Wake up. We, the whole point, of course, is we need to wake up to our, our grandness. We're the headmaster. And we're acting like these, as the, 
the image that's used in the teachings of a, a kind of uh, plane of existence that's really a metaphor for the state of mind that we often enter into. It's called the plane of the hungry ghosts. And it's the beings on this plane of existence are beings with little mouths and huge stomachs, endlessly dissatisfied, begging for a living. So in terms of this tendency to become, it's very, um, to avoid the, the simple reality of the present moment uh, is really built into our nature. And hopefully we can develop, as some have, a sense of humor about, about how, and begin to make that profound shift that, that Heather was speaking about, has been speaking about, from just being carried along by this, this stream of becoming, this stream of thinking, this stream of, of hunger and thirst, carried along by it, acting from our thoughts about ourselves and our dissatisfaction, to being able to relate to it, to be able to see, oh, this is my mind that's in a constant state of search. So relate, instead of relating from our thoughts, we relate to them. And that's what waking up is, to be able to, oh, isn't that interesting? This wonderful comedian named Larry Miller, this particular passage was, has been attributed to George Carlin. It's George Carlin's kind of humor, but it was a guy named Larry Miller. He, he noticed the way that we tend to be caught in this state of becoming, the state of what's next. This is what the Buddha referred to as the second noble truth. This chronic tendency to want what we don't have and not want what we do have. That, that turns the basic unreliability and dissatisfaction that comes with the fact that we are born, we get sick, we die, we, we lose what's very close to us. We, each person's life in some way is marked by something that we, we can't seem to, to get and something that we get that we can't seem to get rid of, that how we deal with that is this, this chronic tendency to be in contention with that basic reality. And it keeps us, it turns our basic, what's called dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, unreliability, stress that comes with existence, it turns it into mental suffering. It turns pain into suffering. And so the Buddha's teaching on the first truth that we all have stress is that you need to open to it. That's what we're doing here. And we're developing the resilience, the steadiness, the clarity of mind to be able to open to it to the extent that we then stop being, stop fighting with it, stop fighting with ourselves. Stop fighting completely. Learning how to let things be as they are. It's only out of that letting be, letting the truth of things enter and pierce our heart that our caring can flow, that our action can flow. I noticed that taking in, I'll just speak personally, even though this is... um, I don't usually make political statements, but I was quite shaken, as many people were, by the uh, 
election. Some of you may have a different persuasion, but I was quite shaken. But I noticed as I sat with it, sat with the not knowing what to do, how to be with it, felt the groundlessness of having things um, shaken up. I noticed that the quieter, the more I really just took it in, the more I felt this kind of ferocious, ferocious uh, feeling of, I am going to, I will, I will get in front of a truck to protect somebody who needs to be protected. It wasn't from some kind of, oh, this is the good thing to do. It felt like it, it came from the bottom of the universe. And I think there's, it, it just reminded me something about, and who knows whether I was, it's just my own response, but it tells me, it told me something about if you just keep opening to the way things are, you don't have to have a model of what's right or what's wrong. It just comes forth. Our caring, our love, our compassion, um, and our action. So I'm digressing a lot, but I wanted to get back to Larry Miller's uh, comments about becoming. Because this is what happens when we, as human beings, when we haven't Uh, recognized uh, that we're already in contact with or what's already available to us is the freedom that we're searching for and is our own mind. So this is the developmental tendency of becoming by Larry Miller. Do you realize that the only time in our lives when we like to get old is when we're kids. If you're less than 10 years old, you're so excited about aging that you think in fractions. How old are you? I'm four and a half. You're never 36 and a half. You're four and a half, going on five. That's the key. You get into your teens, now they can't hold you back. You jump to the next number, or even a few ahead. How old are you? I'm going to be 16. You could be 13, but hey, you're going to be 16. And then the greatest day of your life, you become 21. Even the words sound like a ceremony. You become 21. Yes. But then you turn 30. Ooh, what happened there? Makes you sound like bad milk. He turned. We had to throw him out. There's no fun now. You're just a sour dumpling. What's wrong? What changed? You become 21. You turn 30. You're pushing 40. Whoa, put on the brakes. It's all slipping away before you know it. You reach 50 and your dreams are gone. But wait, you make it to 60. You didn't think you would. So you become 21 turn 30, push 40, reach 50, and make it to 60. You've built up so much speed that you hit 70. (laughs) After that, it's a day-by-day thing. You hit Wednesday. (laughs) You get into your 80s, and every day is a complete cycle. You hit lunch. 
you turn 4.30, you reach bedtime. It doesn't end there. Into your 90s, you start going backwards. I was just 92. Then a strange thing happens. If you make it to over 100, you become a little kid again. I'm a hundred and a half. May we all make it to a healthy hundred and a half. So George Carlin also saw the, the folly in this, this path that we tend to go on, this becoming, this leaning away from the, the present moment. And he found a humorous way to, to call us back to our essential nature, but only in his inimitable way, where he said the most unfair thing about life is the way it ends. I mean, life is tough. It takes up a lot of your time. What do you get at the end? A a death. What's that, a bonus? I think that the life cycle is all backwards. You should die first. Get it over with. Get it out of the way. Then live in an old age home. You get kicked out when you're too young. You get a gold watch. You go to work. You work 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. (laughs) You do drugs, alcohol, you party, you get ready for high school. (laughs) You go to grade school. You become a kid. You play. You have no responsibilities. You become a little baby. You go back into the womb. You spend your last nine months floating in spa-like conditions. (laughs) Central heating, room service on tap. And you finish off as an orgasm. (laughs) Sorry. His name is George Carlin. Oh, Larry Miller. So when the Buddha saw the, the folly of the enchantment with youth, with health, and finally the enchantment with life, this running from, from the reality of sickness, old age, and death, his, his heart, um, something turned in him. He experienced what's been described as, the Pali word for it is samvega, which is a kind of shock and dismay at the futility or the folly of trying to find something uh, lasting, some lasting happiness in the, in the forms of the world that are always changing, your own mind, your own body, your own moods, your own experiences, that, uh, that it's futile to find that. And yet, when he realized that, as I think all of us who are in this room have had that realization to some degree, Otherwise, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be called inward. You would still be thinking. Maybe we all still have the condition. You'd be thinking that if you can just link enough pleasurable moments together, you know, from the beginning when you wake up in the morning, you get just the right meal, you get just the right entertainment or athletics or... or um, job or whatever it is that if you link enough of it together then you can say I'm happy but unfortunately that that association with of our well-being with pleasure has given a lot of pleasure but it's not made anybody happy 
It's not any, made anybody free. It's made us turn the present moment into a means to an end. Into a place that we pass through on our way to when real happiness will happen. At the, when I satisfy my next desire. And that's all very innocent too since we live in this, this um, um, culture that is, you could call it, where the, the, it's got a consumer machine that, that literally needs to keep us in that state of wanting to keep going and, and promises us with all kinds of propaganda uh, that promises happiness but mostly leads us to uh, metaphor used by one teacher is that it uh, offers what it offers us to drink is um, to make us happy is salt water, which actually just makes us more thirsty and creates an environment of addiction in and around us. And it's all about making us happy but then actually we keep depriving ourselves of that source of real joy, which is right here, in this very room, this very body, believe it or not. Hakuin Zen Master says, Oh, how sad that people ignore the near and search for truth afar. Like someone um, in the midst of water crying out in thirst. So with that kind of shock, fortunately, and fortunately for you living in this time where there are, there are um, reminders, there are so many um, teachings and teachers and places of practice, um, books, endless, apps. Uh, fortunately, and at the time of the Buddha, the Buddha saw a, as the fourth heavenly messenger, saw a renunciate. Someone who, who clearly had, had the kind of um, quietness and the contentment of having recognized uh, that the true medicine that, that we are looking for is, is the nature of our own hearts and minds to come back to our tenderness and, and, the, and openness and clarity. That again is a, you don't have to travel anywhere. But the Buddha saw this renunciate who seemed so different. It seemed like they were going against the stream of what everybody else was searching for. But... Uh, so he got inspired, and then he, but he looked around for teachers and teachings at the time, and mostly what he found were teachers who were uh, teaching elements of what we are doing here on this retreat. He found teachers who were teaching the value of not just having the kind of focus that you get from the flow of doing sports or the flow of your work or the flow of creating things, but a, but a kind of concentration, a kind of power of mind that, that is transformative. And he, 
he began to do the, the practice of collecting, of, of gathering his attention and sustaining it just the same way that you've been doing. And because he, at this point, he didn't want anything other than to f- find something that was more reliable than uh, looking for the next pleasurable thing, which he saw would had, have the same unreliability as youth, as health and life. Why should I seek that which is also subject to, to unreliability? So he decided to try to transcend the whole thing by finding something that was beyond that. And he became very... Um, his mind came together and he began to experience a comfort at being collected and being able to stay right where he, he was. And with that came an intense, as I think Heather was referring to, a, a kind of wonder, a kind of joy, a, an intense, what's called pity, rapture, rap, intense interest in the reality of what he was experiencing. And this great comfort of having them the mind not in a state of, of suspended happiness, trying to get somewhere in a state of not really fully breathing, able to just drop into a, a state of almost being massaged by life, touching life right where it's touching you. And this sense of not moving at all. And he felt very happy. Maybe you had little glimpses of that where you didn't want to be somewhere else over the last few days. Anybody? few moments? If we didn't have moments like that, we couldn't keep going. But at the same time, he saw that even though he had many, many more moments, he had long moments. But he eventually saw that just having very refined experiences nice states of concentration. Even though during that time that he was concentrated, he didn't want to be somewhere else. He didn't want what he didn't have. So he wasn't plagued by wanting. And he wasn't plagued by resistance. Any of you plagued by wanting today or resistance? Any of you plagued at all by restlessness and agitation? Worry? Any of you plagued by doubt? Any of you plan your escape? <laughs> if you haven't by now, yeah, I think everyone does a little bit. But this is the, this is the way our mind uh, is trained because of our habits. This is the way our the state of, of seeking, the state of hunger, the state of wanting what I don't have expresses itself as, as, as desire for some kind of pleasure or aversion to whatever is unpleasant, as Heather spoke about a lot. And then because it's so much of our well-being in that world of, of aversion and grasping depends on, on what's next, on things turning out the way we want to, there's a lot of restlessness and worry because maybe it won't turn out. 
So then we get agitated, and then we also get agitated from regret, from, from having, you know, acted unwisely and um, been oblivious in some way because we were so headlong, you know, on our way to the, the next thing that we weren't sensitive to each other. This is the way the hindrances operate and tend to blind us if to the, the capacity that we have to be free and open here and now. So we use these hindrances on our retreat. We make them a central part of the practices. We notice, oh, this is wanting. This is aversion. And we see that each want, each desire has a little story that says, I won't be happy until, I, until the meal or till the Dharma talk or till the retreat is over. The best is yet to come. But what we do on the retreat, instead of making all that real, we expand beyond that little story and we feel what it's like to be in a state of waiting. And then that very state of waiting and wanting actually brings us back to our uh, to real time. It also brings us in t- puts us in touch with the pain of being in a state of suspended happiness, of waiting, hoping. And gets us in touch with that restlessness and worry. Uh, and, the, I, and the recognition that we're postponing our sense of well-being till some imaginary time. So this is really a, pa- a path of non-postponement. It says you've, been, you've just been... Um, you've been building monuments to a future that never arrives. As Alan Watts, a quote I shared this morning in the Q&A, he says, we don't make music in order to reach the end of the composition. He said, if that were the purpose of music, the fastest players would be the best. We don't dance in order to arrive at a particular place on the floor as in taking a journey. When we dance, the dance is the point. And in taking a journey, the journey itself is the point. The same is true in our practice, that the point is always arrived at in the present moment. But we tend to get into that idea of of wanting to be the fastest, the best, good, better, best. The measuring mind that is um, creating this idea of us continually of somebody who's coming from the past, passing through the present on our way to where real happiness is. Remember, we haven't left any. We haven't left here. This is all our imagination. And then, from that, that kind of way of viewing reality as this linear pathway to a future which doesn't really exist. Future is an idea right now. The past is the same. There really is the whole, your whole reality is here. One way of saying it is your whole life has come to this. (laughs) 
So all these torments, they're sometimes called kilesas, or torments of the mind. And the, the, um, the Buddha, when he finally sat down and he entered into these states of concentration, he experienced a mind that was suffused with peace and there was no shadow of any of these torments. But then he realized that that feeling of being so, so concentrated, collected, having the, what's sometimes called as unmixed happiness, he saw that it was temporary and it wasn't really freedom. And there was no one else, no one at that time to tell him. He, he realized he had failed in a way to find a, a reliable happiness. He had, he had seen the power and the beauty of having a, a strong, well-trained mind. But he was not free. But then he did something that had not been done. He aroused that kind of unmixed happiness, but he didn't let the pleasure of it take over. Instead, he used the comfort of his body and his mind and the power of attention that he had built up. And instead, he, he applied it to noticing and opening to, just like we, you've been doing, just like we are doing, opening to the flow of experience as, as things come. So he didn't try to shut anything out. Wasn't trying to be anymore in a state of seclusion, keeping the world at bay. He began to unfurl his mind. And he began to just take everything in as equal. What we've been saying, equal opportunity, mindfulness. And with that strength or well-trained mind, he began to see some common themes to to that flow of experience. One, he recognized that experience is a flow. Things are in a constant flow, constantly coming and going, constant change. He saw that his body was changing, his mind was changing, his mood was changing. Everything was marked by change. This is an immutable law that things that arise pass away. And the more he saw the fact of change, the less he wanted to hold, try to hold on to things. Try to think, the less he believed that something, some experience, some person, some place, some event could make him happy. And his mind began to relax. And yet things were still coming and going, but he was getting happier and happier. And he felt this uh, surge of joy. Not the joy of being secluded, but the joy of non-reactivity. The joy of, of... what's sometimes called the joy of equanimity. Being able to feel the full range of emotions and thoughts and feelings, but, uh, but be okay with it. To be balanced. And inter- another interesting thing happened, the more he paid attention to things, the brighter his mind got. He felt, he, not only was he became interested in what he was noticing, he became more interested in what was noticing. 
until he recognized that his mind was shining in its clarity. And he saw, wow, luminous is this mind. The inherent nature of the mind is pure. Luminous is this mind. It's brightly shining. And it keeps being visited by all these experiences. People who, don't who are not yogis wouldn't understand that. And so they don't cultivate it. They just get lost in the hindrances in these mental states. But then he said, luminous is this mind, brightly shining. And that luminosity, that the very awareness through which we're perceiving is untouched by whatever visits. The awareness of sad is never sad. The awareness of happy is not happy. The awareness of agitation is not agitated. The awareness of busyness is not busy. It remains untouched. And in a flash of insight, he realized that the very freedom that he had searched for was none other than his own mind, your own mind. You are no different. You are the Buddha. Why don't you see this? Because there is that belief, that veil, the belief that you are this person or that person, this flawed person or that So if you could see through this once, just that one moment of sensing your body as not you, but just sensation, your moods as just changing conditions like weather, thoughts and images like clouds, bubbles floating through an empty sky. One glimpse and you can see through it all the time. Just but what we do is we just plant one moment of awareness after another because that moment of awareness is a moment of non-grasping, non-clinging. So when the Buddha said what leads us to, to this, what he called samsara, endless wandering, this desire, this becoming, wanting things to be other than the way they are, he said there's an end to that. We can stop that. And his suggestion is, you need to realize it. And he didn't stop there with, it's possible to, to experience the sense of freedom. He said that there is a path. And at the middle of that path, the navigator of that path is your awareness, your attention. That if, that if brought to bear on your speech, on your actions, in your livelihood, if you bring attention to everything you do, if you train your attention to be here, if you cultivate things that are healthy and wholesome in your life, and you maintain them, you train your attention, you will be able to uh, develop wise understanding and wise intentions, and your, your life will be moved by, um, by simplicity, by generosity, by non-harming, and you can, in this very life, in this very moment, realize the fruit of the practice. And not one of your steps known leads away from it. It's right here. The path begins here, is followed here, and it ends here.
So I'll end with my f- one of my favorite little poems from a fellow named Donald Babcock. It's called The Little Duck. Now we're ready to look at something pretty special. It's a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf. No, it isn't a gull. A gull always has a raucous touch about him. This is some sort of duck, and he cuddles in the swells. He isn't cold, and he's thinking things over. There's a big heaving in the Atlantic, and he's part of it. He looks a bit like a mandarin or the Lord Buddha meditating under the bow tree. But he has hardly enough above the eyes to be a philosopher. He has poise, however, which is what philosophers must have. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably doesn't know how large the ocean is, and neither do you. But he realizes it. And what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That's religion, and the duck has it. He has made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it, just where it touches him. I like the little duck. He doesn't know much, but he has religion. So let's cuddle in the swells. A few minutes, a moment of practice. May all beings realize natural freedom. May all beings realize a well-being that does not depend on circumstances. May all beings be free. So thank you for going along for the ride with me and thank you for listening. Thank you for your practice. We now have about 17 minutes for walking before a short sitting and a little chanting at the nine o'clock sitting. So thank you. Please continue.